Hi there. Welcome to The Dish, a connectivity business news podcast. My name is Madeline, Senior Associate Editor at Connectivity Business News, and today we're speaking with Jean-Francois Gautier, VP of Strategy at GHGSAT. Jean, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Madeline. So I want to get started with news that GHGSAT recently partnered with Satellite Applications Catapult to open an international analytics center in the UK to provide satellite data on global methane emissions and climate research. Would you tell me a bit more about this? Why is the UK Space Agency funding this partnership? Yes, thank you for uh, for highlighting this. This is a very important project for us and something that we have been working uh, working on with the UK Space Agency and the Applications Catapult uh, for uh, actually a few years, trying to find the right combination and the right uh, the right uh, setup to bring this uh, this sort of expertise uh, to the UK. So under this this agreement here. Uh, first of all, as, as you said, we're committing to, uh, to really expanding our presence in the UK with a, an analytics center, uh, in, uh, uh, focused in London, but also with, uh, uh with, uh, some members in Edinburgh. And, uh, this will be focused on, uh, on climate finance, uh, primarily on climate finance applications with London being a, uh, obviously, a, a world, uh, Sort of center of focus for uh, for this, and uh, and as part of this uh, this project, as part of this agreement, we'll be uh, we'll be sharing data with a lot of organizations within the UK uh, to bring new applications for our data. Uh, there's a lot of expertise in country uh, in in the UK on uh, geospatial data and and uh, climate in general. So our data is really quite unique in the world in terms of what it provides on greenhouse gas emissions and combining that with the expertise of uh, a lot of these partners in the UK uh will uh you know, will undoubtedly uh, generate a lot of new uh avenues and applications for for the data so so we're really excited about that uh, really excited about the the leadership that the UK is bringing to the table here with this uh with this agreement uh and uh and we can't uh and we've already already underway and we can't wait to to continue here this this partnership in the next uh in the next couple of years. Thank you. And who are some of the other organizations in the UK that you're working with? So one of the prominent ones is uh is Ordnance Survey, which is a uh a a leading organization in the UK on geospatial information and actually uh, they have a, a leadership position worldwide because they they've been doing cartography for for a very long time even before obviously satellites were involved in this and managed to make themselves uh, experts on uh, on satellites as they became more and more important for this so that's one example of of an organization there but there's several other uh, several other, uh, uh, small and medium companies that, uh, that we're starting, uh, discussions with right now to figure out which ones would be uh, interested in, in obtaining our data. And of course, there's several universities, uh, as well, 
that are interested in participating in this. There's an academic portion to to all of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, names that are relevant here, University of Leicester, uh, University of Leeds, among um, and Oxford, amongst others that uh, that uh, would, uh, you know, could potentially play a big role here. So. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of interest and a lot of potential here to uh, to explore. Thank you. It does seem like Europe um, has like a special interest in using satellites for environmental monitoring. Is that accurate? It is accurate, and uh, and of course, like with uh, with Brexit, the relationship between between Europe and the UK can be uh, maybe a little bit more complex than it had been in the past. Uh, but there's still ties there. And, uh, you know, we, we also work very closely with the European Space Agency. Uh, we're part of what's called the third party mission, uh, program there with, uh, with ESA. Uh, and, uh, there, there, there are really a lot of ties between, uh, between continental Europe and, and the UK. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, to kind of continuing making those links as well because they're very important. And would you say that Brexit um, propelled the space and satellite industry in Europe to a degree because you have the collaboration between the European Union, but then at the same time, you have the UK doing more independently? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's maybe a bit early to tell uh, whether it actually propelled it, because initially at first – there was an, a, a time of uncertainty between, uh, you know, until it was figured out whether or not the UK would still be part of uh, the flagship programs from the EU, like Copernicus. So, so uh, you know, I think it creates uh, and maybe it delineates opportunities maybe a bit a bit more clearly. It creates kind of two main centers to to drive. Uh, to drive uh, opportunities and projects. So, uh, so in the long term, I think what you're suggesting there could could indeed be the case. Thank you. And GHG said I know is also working with Chevron, Shell, and Total Energies on a separate project that measures emissions from offshore oil sites. GHG Sat has said this is the first time satellites will be used to monitor methane emissions at sea. Why is this achievement so important? That's a uh, that's a really uh, a really relevant, really important question because um, satellites that look at uh, at uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions typically operate in the shortwave infrared uh, spectrum like we do, and uh, in that part of the uh, of the infrared spectrum, uh, light is actually absorbed by water, and we measure the absorption of that sunlight by the gas of interest, but we need the light to bounce back to Earth, uh, to, to, to space. So it needs to bounce off of the Earth's surface back to space. But if it is absorbed by water, uh, then it is impossible to make a measurement, really, under normal operating conditions with our satellites. So there there is a method uh, to make measurements over water that's not, you know, wasn't invented by GHGSAT. It's called glint mode. Several other satellites that uh, do other types of Earth observation have done that in the past. So what we've done is with, in partnership with those companies, is we've looked at adapting the way we operate the satellites in order to be able to perform this type of observation over uh, offshore platforms, for example, in order to assess emissions. So 
this is an initiative we started um, almost two years ago and now is uh, has uh, is now uh, complete and as a result we've been able to prove that uh, uh, that that capability is possible we've monitored emissions offshore repeatedly and actually uh, uh, one of the best demonstration of this was last fall when the uh, when the Nord Stream pipeline incident occurred. Uh, everyone had seen the images of the the gas, the methane bubbling to the surface, but we provided the only image from satellites that uh, that were that was able to confirm like methane, basically a large methane plume emanating from uh, from one of these breaches of the pipeline. So, uh, so really quite, uh, you know, it was quite telling and quite interesting. Turned out to be the, uh, the largest leak we've ever measured, uh, uh, with over 80 tons per hour. Uh, so largest leak we've measured with our own satellites. There are other leaks that have been seen with public, <clears throat> public satellites that can be, uh, a little bit larger than that. But ultimately it confirmed the, it was a really good affirmation of that capability. And since then, we've measured emissions uh, across the spectrum all the way down to a couple hundred kilograms per hour, like very low detection uh, threshold to, to demonstrate that the capability can indeed be used offshore uh, in, a, uh, in an efficient manner. Thank you. And to my understanding, um, you used a special NASA-developed technique for this? Yeah, it's a technique that, like I said, has been has been uh, kind of utilized by NASA, by the European Space Agency. It's a well understood technique that uh, you know usually satellites will look straight down as they pass over a, a target. Uh, that's called nadir. So you, you 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 the satellite looks straight straight down at the target. For this, uh, it's called glint mode because we're looking at the glint spot, the glint reflection. Uh, off of the water. So the best way I can describe this is if you, uh, if you've ever flown on an airplane over an ocean, over a lake, uh, and on a clear day with no clouds and you looked, uh, uh, you look through the window, you can usually see uh, a spot, a bright spot from the sun that hits you back in your eyes. Like it, it reflects very brightly into your eyes. That's the glint spot. So in order to reach that with our satellite, uh, we, uh, our satellites, what we do is we look at the target, uh, at a very acute angle, like very kind of, uh, uh, basically over the satellite shoulder, if you, if you will, instead of straight down. And this allows us to put the target between that glint spot and the satellite. And then we have enough light to measure. So I know it sounds a, a little abstract there, but if we look straight down, water basically looks like uh, a dark body, like we see nothing because uh, it, the light is completely absorbed by water. Wow. Um, speaking of NASA, I know that GHGSAT recently received a NASA task order to deliver environmental monitoring data for NASA's commercial small sat data acquisition program. Would you elaborate on this? Why is government and commercial collaboration so important? Well, so this is important on many levels for us. So uh, the precursor to this uh, over on the European side is this TPM program, this third-party mission program I mentioned. And this is all about uh, 
large space agencies in that case, like ESA, but like NASA is doing the same thing with CSDA. They look at our data as a, you know, a commercial company, an independent sort of provider of, of such information. And they look at, at, uh, the quality of the data. They look at how it's collected. They look at, uh, just a lot of different uh, indicators as to if the data is reliable, if it can be trusted. And, uh, and with TPM, we passed that process last year and this was all validated, uh, you know, and, and proven that our data was of, of very high quality. In fact, enough, and uh, enough sufficient quality to be, uh, uh, included in, uh, in that program, which then disseminates information that, that data to researchers and academics across the EU. So CSDA is a similar program, uh, at NASA to look at uh, evaluating the quality of the data, its usefulness to scientists, uh, and it's a precursor to, uh, you know, once the program is completed successfully to a larger partnership with, with NASA. And, uh, basically this is a recognition by these space agencies that private industry now is bringing to the table different capabilities that perhaps the space agencies haven't developed yet. And, uh, you know, don't necessarily have the funding to develop because they can't do everything. So being able to harness data from private industry that is of, uh, considered high quality and, and trustworthy becomes very important. And it really augments what, you know, for example, NASA can do, uh, because they can combine this information with the excellent data they have from their own satellites. And then you have a, a fuller picture of the situation. So that's, that's the nature of CSDA and why we're doing it and why it's important there because our data becomes a very key complement to everything that NASA does because they currently uh, don't have it, don't have this capability to the scale that we can offer today with, uh, with our fleet of satellites. Thank you. And I know that GHGSAT has really established itself um, as an operator of methane monitoring satellites. But I spoke with Cephane back in April, and he said there were plans for GHGSAT to launch a CO2 monitoring satellite later this year. Can we get an update on this? Absolutely. So uh, so this is on track, and we're launching – so we launched three satellites in April. Those were all methane satellites. Uh, and uh, we're launching three more in the fall. And out of those three, uh, two will be methane and one will be the first CO2 satellite. So, uh, uh, and the, the aim here will be to do very much what we do with methane right now to look at emissions directly from large sources, uh, anthropogenic sources. And, uh, and uh, very excited about that because now it, uh, it, uh, basically augments, uh, just in- increases our, our area of expertise to other gases other greenhouse gases and uh uh you know we're all uh the team is very excited about um you know looking at the the performance of this instrument and how it can bring uh bring to bear sort of uh, new information here to complement what's being done uh on CO2 because it is the most important greenhouse gas and uh and and we believe that the information will be will be generating will be an important complement to that Thank you. And and why now for a CO2 monitoring satellite? Um, are they more difficult to build? Is it harder to measure that gas than it is to measure methane? 
So it is it is more complex, more difficult or challenging to measure CO2 compared to methane because CO2 is very abundant in the atmosphere. So our satellites are designed to measure enhancement over background. And what I mean by that is background means that in the air, uh, you know, that we all breathe, there's a certain concentration of, of CO2 and, and actually of methane and other gases. So that's the the normal sort of background concentration. So the CO2 background concentration is very high. So in order to measure a, uh, a source, the source has to be very, very strong. Uh, with methane, it's a little bit different because the, con- the background concentration normally is quite low. So to notice a, to be able to measure a, uh, a leak or an emission at a site, uh, it doesn't have to be nearly as big as it would have to be for CO2. So it allows us to, to be able to detect, um, uh, leaks that are, that are much smaller. So the detection threshold is much, much lower. So, uh, so that's, uh, one of the main reasons why, uh, you know, CO2 came second. The other reason is, uh, that methane is the main component of natural gas. So, uh, so it has a value. If you're leaking methane, you're leaking natural gas. If you're leaking natural gas, well, you're, you're leaking product. Uh, so you're, you're basically losing revenue if you're an oil and gas company. Uh, you're also dealing with a certain level of danger because it's very explosive, which CO2 isn't. So there's another motivation there to find these leaks and prevent them. Uh, from occurring because you can have loss of life or loss of assets, for example. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, there, there's different, different motivations here for, for methane to have come first. But as I said earlier, CO2 is obviously the, the main, uh, greenhouse gas and, and, uh, also requires a lot of attention. So, so now, uh, we're turning our, our attention to it. There's a lot of interest for this type of data especially in the on the, in the financial sector in order to uh to drive responsible investing and uh and understand the the footprint of several industries. Thank you and kind of on that topic mm-hmm. satellites have become very good for earth monitoring. Mm-hmm. But how do climate focused satellite operators like GHGSat find the balance between protecting Earth's climate with it, their technologies, but also being wary of the, you know, increasingly crowded space environment. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's obviously on our, on our minds as we operate as a company that's focused on sustainability and the environment. So one of the things that, that we do is uh, we uh, always look at uh, making sure that like, we exploit the, the mechanisms that are possible to ensure that our satellites don't remain in orbit much longer than they, than they need to be, or at least uh, trying to minimize that. And we're part of uh, several uh, initiatives and, and discussions at, uh, you know, with, with several parties like the UN uh, to look at um, upcoming regulations and, and, and discussions on these types of, of regulations about um, basically regulating how space debris is dealt with. Like when these satellites, uh, uh, when the useful life is is over, uh, you obviously do not want to be crowding space longer than, than needed because it becomes, because it becomes a, essentially space junk uh, at end of life. So, um, 
so uh, we're we're taking part, an active part in all of these discussions, and uh, and really uh, trying to be a good uh, a good citizen here in terms of of using space responsibly, so that it can continue playing an important role to monitor Earth for decades to come, um, instead of uh, perhaps becoming a a bit of a you know a, a landfill in orbit. I like that landfill in orbit. <laughs> And I just have one more question today. It's pretty open-ended. What's one thing you really think our subscribers should know? One thing your subscribers should know is that uh, as important as discussing technology is, uh, technology now is here. So that's a that's a uh, a drum I've been banging for uh, for uh, the last year quite actively because I'm often asked about. Uh, you know, what's the next step in technology? What's coming up? You know, that's always exciting and everyone wants to hear about that. The interesting thing is technology is here when it comes to emissions. So it's not just our satellites. Like obviously our system is not research and development anymore. It hasn't been for many years now. We're operational. We're providing data every day to governments and industry to address their emissions. But it's also other technologies like on the you know, ways to, to monitor with airplanes and drones and on the ground. And all of these are complementary. And it's also extending to technologies to fix uh, emissions, you know, to repair leaks, to prevent them on the ground, to uh, uh, basically operate responsibly as, as, as uh, you know, an oil and gas operator, for example, by replacing equipment with equipment that is less likely to have emissions. So, Basically, the technologies are here, so the time is for action. The time isn't to, you know, uh, keep our fingers crossed for new technologies to come to help us out. So the time is now to turn our attention to action. Uh, technologies will continue to evolve and, and amaze us in terms of what they can accomplish. That's a given. I think uh, at GHGSAT, we're committed to doing that. We're committed to advancing our technology and I know that many of the other technologies I referenced there are doing the same thing, but that's no reason to to stop uh, focusing on action to wait for the next level of technology. It's more than enough now to just act on it, and there's not enough action happening. I mean, this is reflected in the discussions at the last two COPs, for example, COP26 in Glasgow, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, where... There's been a lot of promises and pledges about methane and promises of, of action, but action has been, uh, has been scarce so far. So there's a lot of hope that at COP28 this year in, uh, in Dubai, uh, that there'll be, uh, the possibility here to, to really come to the table and show action, kind of deliver on these promises. Because the time is now, I think we all realize now with some of the things that we're observing uh, across uh, across the planet from uh, crazy wildfires in Canada that are blanketing uh, all of North America in smoke and all the way across to Europe to uh, the water off of Florida being as hot as a hot tub recently in the last few weeks. Uh, th- there are things happening here that are clear indicators that the time is now to do something. The tools are here, so let's act. <laughs> so the government and commercial industries really have to work together. Yes. I mean, the, the, it's, uh, it, it, it's really important that all levels, from industry to all levels of government, 
really uh, start working together now to uh, to drive that that action that's sorely needed. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again to Jean-Francois Gautier, VP of Strategy at GHGSAT. This has been the DISH Podcast by Connectivity Business News. Before I close this out, I do just want to remind our listeners about the upcoming Connectivity Next Summit 2023, presented by Connectivity Business News. The event is scheduled for November 13th and 14th in Atlanta, and will focus on trends and opportunities in satellite and telecom connectivity. The summit will provide insight into the latest developments and trends that are changing how connectivity professionals create strategic plans for SATCOM development, deployment, and commercialization. Be sure to take advantage of early bird pricing while it's still available at connectivitynextsummit.com.